Yeah. Let's take a look today at treasure in jars of clay. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you've heard the word glory a lot. Yeah, Paul has been talking about the glory of the new covenant, and even today we hear about the glory of God. And we've said some words about what it is, but uh, what I like to do to start off with is kind of talk about the opposite, because in the Bible we see sort of the opposite of glory dealt with as well. Maybe that gives us a better idea of what glory is. Uh, so there's a book called Ecclesiastes in the Bible, and some of you are familiar with that. Uh, Solomon, who was a very wealthy individual, intelligent as well, had political power, but he was exploring, uh, and even if you think it wasn't Solomon uh, who, who wrote Ecclesiastes, this person was exploring, what's the real meaning of life? Because there was something still missing. And so, with all his money, he chased after things that money can, can buy, uh, and pleasure, and, and, and the power that we've already talked about. He, he had it all, and he, he chased after it because he was searching for something that would really satisfy the deepest longings inside of him, which every single human being has. Is there more? Is there purpose to this life? And he discovered that as... As he was chasing these things, it was like chasing the wind. And so he says everything's meaningless. Vanity, vanity, hebel. It's like this, this it's literally wind. You just grasp for it. it. It promises something, but it does not deliver. It gives you this sense of it, it's there, but it, it's not the real thing. And at the very end of that book, he says, here's the conclusion of the matter. Now all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. So he found purpose in obeying God and in walking with God, in serving God. That's where he found real, real substance. And the, the counterweight to that was the emptiness of this world's pursuits. Vanity. So perhaps you could say, and I think rightly so from a biblical perspective, the opposite of glory is this kind of vanity that it's not the real thing. We long for it, we chase after it, but we can't ever quite get it. And so Paul is saying, every heart's like that, but guess what? The one who is truly the real substance, the real, the real longing of our hearts has come and clothed himself in the person of Christ. And he, we have beheld his glory and this new covenant that Christ has brought in, satisfies the deepest longings we sing about that, of every human heart. And that's the kind of thing that only God's Spirit can convince you of. Paul says, I'm going to come with, uh, just deliver God's word, but he's not coming with a bunch of clever arguments. He's not going to tamper with God's word. He's just going to say, Jesus is the hope of the world. And you've been created to worship him. And until that's really true, everything else will feel meaningless because ultimately it is until you step into that relationship. And this is why Paul's so excited about that all-surpassing glory of God. He can't stop talking about it. In Psalm 127.1 we read, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Same word. Anything that you're doing, and here's a picture of builders constructing a house. So 
There's this kind of like ministry out there that he's talking about that's apostolic. But even back in the Old Testament, we all have work to do. And the work that you're doing, unless God is involved in that, it's just vanity. It's just going to disappear at some point. No wonder you feel hopeless and meaningless. If you're honest about where these things lead, there's a point in life when you say, what's it all about? And unless you're anchored to something that's bigger than you, that's, that's more majestic than you, that isn't frail like you are, you can get to the point of hopelessness. This is what Ecclesiastes was about. And the good news, of course, is, is that Christ is truly the solution. Your heart will yearn for that completion until you trust fully in Christ. This is what Paul has spent his life trying to say to people. And he's willing to suffer for it. He does suffer quite a bit. Because gospel living, gospel work, that's the stuff of glory. And it's not vain, but it is hard. It's very hard. To see change. It's hard to believe change is possible in ourselves and others. And frankly, it's discouraging at times. And it can involve pain. The pathway to discouragement and burnout is very real. Not just in, in, say, gospel ministry, which Paul was engaged in. But he's writing to a group of people who worked in all kinds of areas of life. And he said, this is hard. Because... Even though it's real, it's difficult. But in that difficulty is where you see the beauty of the gospel at work. Now, you would think, for example, that missionaries who maybe even leave their homes and go over there, who've got this kind of basic idea figured out, would go over there and would flourish. But many missionaries burn out. In fact, some of you are familiar with Surge. It was called World Harvest Mission before. The entire existence of that group... uh, the reason it really exists and started writing material was to missionaries because missionaries were going over and burning out. But they're supposed to understand the gospel more than anybody else. And he said, what's happening here? So they began exploring that maybe underneath it sometimes, even being a missionary and even being out there on the front lines, there's some idol underneath that you're seeking, maybe approval from others or even from God. That when you don't get it, you're completely undone. They said, you know, you need to turn your gaze repeatedly to Jesus again and again and again. Because our hearts are longing sometimes to worship something that is a cheap substitute. And even missionaries can do that. You know, you should be disappointed when you see pastors fall from grace. At some point along the line, they've begun doing the same thing. And I could be prone to it as well. This is why we need to anchor ourselves again and again and again in God's word. And be honest about where we are. Confess our sins and all that stuff that you're supposed to be doing. Being renewed inwardly day by day. Because if you're doing that in your own strength, ultimately it's going to fail. You'll get jaded and cynical and and mean. (laughs) Because you're judging everybody else and you forgot, but by the grace of God, there go I. And Paul doesn't want that, neither do you, I think. I hope. I know I don't. So when we read these words, this should be life to us. Like, what do I need to see here so that I don't go down that path of vanity again? This is about glory. This is about being stuff that's real. 
And, and Paul understands that we can go astray and that we can lose heart. We can get tired and grow weary. That's why he said already in chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, do not lose heart. And then again, in this text today, in 4.16, therefore, do not lose heart. In other words, don't grow discouraged. Don't give up. Don't despair. Don't be consumed with hopelessness. Instead, he says, rest in God's power. All the more so when you see your own weakness. Understand that dying and dying to self, it's simply the pathway to life. Believe that God is at work in the darkest moments. Be renewed inwardly. Gaze on the beauty and the hope of an eternal perspective. Give God glory. He's the worthy recipient of praise. We've already seen in the book he's the source of all comfort. He's the source of any perseverance we might have, any hope, any renewal, any life. He is the true source. And so it's quite staggering, just thinking about where we are now, that the very first thing that Paul says in verse 7 is we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. The treasure is the ministry of the gospel, the reality of Christ, who he is. It's true. He's come. He's making all things new. And God chooses to put that message inside A jar of clay? Now, in those days, of course, jars of clay. We don't have them often in our homes. Anybody have jars of clay displayed? Um, You do? Some people do. Now, So it was very common and ordinary in that day and very breakable. It was was a little bit like a a cheap dish. This isn't, you know, you get married and maybe somebody gives you some china and you pass it down from year to year to your family. Nobody wants this. This is, this is the cheapest thing you can get at Ikea or something like that. And you bring it home, and, it, and kids are over, and it, and it breaks, and you're like, eh, we've got a hundred of those grunkins or whatever it was called from Ikea. So you go, fine. This, this is what it was like here. So God, who has this all-surpassing glory we've been talking about, has entrusted and put it inside of weak, broken vessels that are prone all the time to be just like cracked. That's kind of odd. You have an iPhone, most of you. Some of you have Androids. If you go get the newest version, okay, you go to whatever your place you buy it is, what's the, the very first thing you purchase right after you get your phone? A case, right? So that you can protect it because it's valuable. You spend $1,000 on this thing or whatever it was. It's valuable. And we're talking about all-surpassing glory of God. Where does he put it? In a jar of clay, I mean, God's got a great sense of humor, doesn't he? But the reason he does that, Paul says, is so that we know any power comes from God, not from us. This whole self-made man thing, Marlboro man, it's not the gospel. It isn't. It's completely counter to the gospel. But it shows that we want to be like that. The only way that we can get there, if you're following Jesus, is to recognize that you're weak, that you're prone to brokenness. That's where God displays his power. Paul acknowledges his weakness, but he finds redemptive hope in it. That's where redemption really works, is this process of God making us new. Because we're jars of clay. And since God's power is at work in him, He is not crushed. 
He's not in despair. He's not abandoned. He's not destroyed. That run there in verse 8. It's interesting because Paul, when he says we're jars of clay, he recognizes, if you were to unpack this for a little while, that, that our emotion, we're, we're emotionally assaulted. I mean, he's talking about trauma here. If you've ever read the list of things that Paul experienced, you can't come out of that stuff without being traumatized. Like rocks thrown at you until you're almost dead by people who hate you? That qualifies as trauma. So it's a physical reality. He was physically beaten, but there's the emotional part of it too. But he realizes that because God's power is at work, even there, it's not the final end. There's something still that God is doing in the context of that that he can hang on to. And it brings out our weakness all the more when we see that we're broken. These are all reflective of the same troubles faced by his Savior. So for Paul, when he's experiencing the harder parts of life, even to the point of feeling like he is dying, remember verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 9? In our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But why did this happen? So that we can rely on God, not on ourselves. He's saying the same thing here. It's both so that he can rely on God and it is the space in which Christ operates to give life, not only to him but to others. Ours is a suffering faith. It just is. And oftentimes you'll see that in a place where there's much prosperity, we forget that. Because suffering, who wants it? And God translates it and brings something good out of it for sure, but... We don't create suffering for the sake of suffering. We want to avoid it as much as possible. And yet the gospel says it's when that weakness enters that God can display his power. So for those of us who maybe cherish comfort and say, I don't want to feel uncomfortable, we have a chance to shift our perspective a bit and say, okay, God, show your power because I can't do anything here. I've come to the end. It's not very American, by the way. It might be better for your culture, I don't know, but in America, this doesn't sell very, very easily. It sounds good philosophically, like so many things, but when it happens, well, then that really reveals where the source of our faith is. It's a faith that embraces weakness. It's a faith that invites authenticity because death and brokenness, it's always a pathway to life and to healing. There's a book, I think I've read it more than any other book. You can see there's proof. It's small, so that's easy. And, uh, but profound is a series of messages by a, a man named Roy Hessian called The Calvary Road. And it's one of those books I just come to and reread from time, time to time as well. And I picked it up recently, and some of these, these quotes from what I was reading seemed appropriate and on point. He says, people imagine that dying to self makes one miserable. But it is just the opposite. It is the refusal to die to self that makes one miserable. The more we know of death with him, the more we shall know of his life with us. His life, too, will overflow through us to lost souls in a real concern for their salvation and to our fellow Christians in a deep desire for their blessing. 
He's talking about dying to self. But then he also starts talking about revival. Everybody wants revival. And really, this is a, a missionary speaking to missionaries talking about revival. And part of what he says is revival simply means new life in hearts where the spiritual life has ebbed. But not a new life of self-effort or self-initiated activity. It is not man's life, but God's life. The life of Jesus filling us and flowing through us, that life is manifested in fellowship and openness with those with whom we live. Nothing between us and God and nothing between us and others. And it's very practical. If we had time, he goes through to say, you know where this is displayed the most is in the home. Are you able in the home to be open and honest and the things that divide and that build up to? There's no, that's, it's different. You do have to die to self, but in that dying there is life. When you're dying to your rights, which is exactly what Jesus did. And Paul says for him and his experience as an apostle, this resonates. And if he doesn't really understand that, then he can lose hope. He can lose heart. Because life is hard. Does it have any more purpose? God's glory says yes. It does. And he's at work showing his power in your weakness. That's turning it upside down. Instead of saying, maybe God, you've abandoned me in that moment. Where are you at work in a way, showing your power that wouldn't be true otherwise? So Paul is giving us this picture and these words of, of brokenness and death, but then life and death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. He sees himself as a vessel for God's glory, a broken one, and even in his own dying, it means life for others. That's what's motivating him. So God's strength and our weakness shows his power. And then in verses 13 through 15, Paul starts suggesting that Faith that knows God's power is manifest in our weakness. That is faith that knows God's power is manifest in our weakness, and, and it shows it. It's manifested in different ways. And first, he says it's manifested by speaking honestly. Look at verse thirteen. It's written, "I believe, therefore I have spoken." With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. And we read Psalm 116 at the beginning of the message. It's a, it's a psalm of desperation. The cords of death are entangling me. And I, I'm, I'm crying out and I'm suffering. And, and it's so fascinating that that verse goes on to say, I believed, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted. If you are a believer in Christ and you're suffering, you can, you can say it. You can talk to God about it. God... I'm afflicted. I'm suffering. I'm confused. I don't understand. That is an expression of faith. That is an expression of faith, at least according to Psalm 116. I believed, therefore I said, and there's a lot of places in the Bible that says, God, you're great. You're majestic and you're awesome. But there it says, I believe, therefore I said, I'm suffering. I'm afflicted. I'm depressed. I'm confused, I'm mad, I'm irritated. I am afflicted greatly. And that is an expression of faith. And Paul wrestled, and even our Lord did. Lord, if there's any other way to go through this, 
but not my will, but yours be done. He was honest. He was sweating. He was agonizing. And so faith that knows God's power understands you can speak honestly. Belief that translates into a spirit of faith can cry out, I have nowhere else to go but God. And I found even there that he is faithful. In verse 14, Paul says this kind of faith also has hope in the future. And Paul is using this quote because he knows that even if he does die, it's not the end. I mean, I don't think Paul's still alive. And the psalmist who wrote that's not alive either. Death is there, but they realize that death is not the end. It isn't. And Paul said, for me to live as Christ and to die is what? It's gain. And he could say that because he said here, we know the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. He's looking forward to the hope of a resurrection because it already happened in the past in Jesus. This is why Paul spends so much time in 1 Corinthians, which we looked at before 2 Corinthians, chapter 15, talking about the resurrection of Christ. If that didn't happen, your faith and mine, if you have faith, totally useless. We've created a nice little gathering of individuals to get together and eat with each other sometimes, you know, help out each other when things are difficult. But that's not what the church is about. That's not what being a follower of Christ is about. If Christ's resurrection is not real, we're pathetic. This is completely useless. And frankly, I don't want to be here this morning. I'm not going to waste my time. I'm pretty practical doing something that's useless. This is vain. But it's, I don't believe that. <laughs> I do believe that this is glorious and this is true. And part of the reason is because of the historical fact of the resurrection, which Paul argues for vigorously throughout 1 Corinthians and especially in chapter 15. And he says, if you latch on to that, therefore, at the very end of chapter 15, he says, remain steadfast. In other words, don't Lord lose heart. Your work in the Lord is not in vain. The opposite, remember of glory? It's filled with glory. Changing diapers filled with glory? Yeah. Unloading the dishwasher? Mm-hmm. Teaching a kid how to drive? Yeah. It's all filled with glory. It, you look differently at these things because they are infused with value that is beyond your current comprehension. Our brokenness and our hope for the future. And even when somebody breathes their last death, it's not the end. It isn't. This is the Christian hope. That, that there is more. That it's just the beginning. And, and it's a hope that, that Paul says only Christians can really latch on to. We have the historical fact of the resurrection. So he says, look, we got to hope in the future. I love this kind of vision of, of us all together. It's, you know, the Lord Jesus raising us and presenting us with you in his presence. Together. It's very communal. This family of God. And then in verse 15 he says, if you really know God's power like that and it's manifest in our weakness, well then you can be free to focus on others and to do it for the glory of God. Isn't that interesting? In verse 15 he says, all this, all that we're doing 
is for your benefit. So Paul has said, I'm doing all this stuff, and it's not for me. This isn't, this isn't all, it's not about what I, I primarily get. It's about you. This is exactly why Jesus came. He came down, not for his own benefit, but for yours. He emptied himself, took the form of a servant, died on a cross, because he had the joy of you sitting here today, trying to understand more of this glory in mind, in view. And Paul says, I'm going to do the same. So he has the, the freedom to focus on others because God's power is at work even in the midst of his weakness. Its end result is for people to respond, he says, with thanksgiving for the glory of God. And there it is again, the glory of God. His life is organized around giving himself to others, which isn't natural, and he feels drained of that. So he needs a power not his own, which he find comes from God. So that he can serve others, and they too will, will do it and glorify God with their thanks. So his purpose, then, is to give himself for others so that they can know God's glory that he's been trying to talk about. It's for the glory of God. And people have figured that out for over many, many years. Why do we exist? Is it for our own glory? You know, Psalm 115.1, which is before Psalm 116, says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. It's not about building our own kingdom. It's building his. And we participate that in that process. And this is just the beautiful pathway that God has invited us to walk. Whether we're an apostle back in the first century or a housewife or an engineer or a house dad or whatever you might be. And so Paul goes on to say in verses 16 through 18, once again, repeating, therefore we do not lose heart. This is the phrase he's repeated. This is what he wants us to get. You're tired and you're weary, don't lose heart. God's at work in the midst of weakness. But there's also another key to not losing heart, not, not running out of steam, not, not finishing the race poorly. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So inward renewal is an important component if you're not going to lose heart in this journey. And interestingly enough, that's a divine passive in the Greek. In other words, you're not the one renewing yourself. God is renewing you. But you have to position yourself to be renewed. It's like this. I don't know how many of you have been to the Great Wolf Lodge. A couple of you, too. How about Kings Island? All right, so Kings Island, more people. You know, you go to one of those water parks. They both have it. There's a giant bucket that's filled with water, if you're familiar with this. I mean, it's a massive quantity of water. And, 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 and you can watch it be filled, and then a horn will go off or something. When it's about to, to spill, you can see the bucket start spilling over. And you can be from a distance and watch that bucket spill onto other people. And think, ah, ha, ha. Or something like, or go right underneath and just, you know, it's shocking, but it's, if it's a hot day, it just feels so refreshing. To, to me, that's a picture of a divine passive because the people who are there are just getting showered on by the water. 
But they have to position themselves in a place to get that. It's not like they're actually just, you know, spitting a whole bunch and then falling underneath it and saying, wow, look at what we did. That's about what you're going to end up with. There's something else going on that's bigger and stronger and a mechanism in place that's like pouring out. But they had to get there. And I, that's how I, I envision divine passives like this. Be renewed inwardly day by day because it's not about self-effort. They're not saying, just try harder. Just believe God a little bit more. Just whatever. It, it, there's a sense, though, when you are positioning yourself to be renewed. And the Bible talks a lot about that. We've, we've done some, you're doing some of it right now. Hopefully, you're listening to God's word being preached. That is a renewal process. And you've subjected yourself to listen to a, a, a servant like me. It, it might be just a tiny, and there's like a little trickle coming out. And you're like, that was a little disappointing. But hopefully there's like at least a little bit of something coming there. And you, you're, you're going looking for ways to be renewed, as it were. Some of that's in the faithful preaching of God's word. But that's not it. You can't listen to me, and you don't want to listen to me all the time. There's things that God has given you as well. Paul and Jesus both relied heavily on prayer, translating prayer all the time, constantly praying, some set times aside, but even in the, in the course of life, just reflectively praying. We see that in the Bible, like Nehemiah. He set aside times for fasting and prayer, but then also he appears before the king, and they call it an arrow prayer, right? Pew, God, I need your help right now. All those things. That's, that's part of how you're renewed. You're posturing, positioning yourself for God to renew you. So you shouldn't be surprised if you feel dry and empty and weary. You might ask the question, why am I not, where am I not positioning myself to be renewed? And God's blowing out the horn. Be honest with me. Reach out to somebody else. Feast on God's word. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That's how you're renewed. Gather with others who are on this journey together. This is the process of renewal. So that's one piece of it. But another he has here is having an eternal perspective. That will, according to Paul, guard us from losing heart. That is, you see your troubles and even God's power being released in them as light and momentary. And the only reason you can do that is not because they're actually light and momentary. They're real and they hurt and they're hard. But by comparison, they're nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. Nothing. And so you can say that I am suffering greatly. You can be honest about that. And it's very real. And if it's so profound, you feel like you're entangled in the cords of death. At that moment, the eternal perspective says, I can't imagine what glory is going to be like. If this is nothing, and it's so deeply painful, wow, what do I have to look forward to? This is what faith can do. Not dismiss the reality of our suffering, but put it in the context of something greater to come. Some of that happens now. You, you might have wonderful stories of how God met you in your pain and even gave a, a little glimmer of the glory to come by, by healing you. Maybe even physically, and it's spectacular and enormous, but just like Lazarus, you've been raised from the dead only to die again? 
Because there is a time when you... But that's just entry to the next thing. See, to the next glory. We're being transformed from one level of glory to the next. That's what he was saying. So nobody's beyond the reach of God because he takes dead things and makes them living. And nobody who's suffering today is doing so in vain. Not if you're a follower of Christ. Because you can rightly catch that as something that is small by comparison to the glory to be revealed. And for those who don't know Christ, what do you have left? Not that. So Paul's going to lay himself down for that reality. An eternal perspective. Um, some of you know Francis Chan. Years ago, maybe you know, 10 plus years ago, I saw him talking a, a, a video on, on eternity. And Sometimes when you see illustrations, they stick with you forever. They're usually good illustrations. So he, he brought out like a rope, and he basically said, look, this, this part is your life. That's pretty good. You have a nice life. That's, that's, a, that's a good chunk of living, um, perhaps. But here's the thing. This is your life against eternity. And, uh, and this rope represents eternity. So if we pull on that rope... We're going to be here a while, folks. <laughs> this is your life versus eternity. Okay, it's going on and on and on. Take my word for it. It never ends. It goes on for a little, a little while. So your suffering is very real, but against eternity, when God comes back and, and Jesus comes back and makes everything right and you're, there's no more suffering, no more pain, no more heartache, no more sorrow, no more injustice, no more disobedience, no more brokenness, that's it. That's the hope of the glory offered in Christ. And the only reason we can have that is because Christ gave us access to it. So that's why Paul's so excited to say, I'll lay down my life for this. And even when I'm weak, then I am strong. I maybe am crushed, but I'm never abandoned because Christ paid the price. The author of Hebrews said something similar. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Consider him and sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Same thing he's saying. Consider Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He began a good work in you. He's going to carry it to completion. And his blood seals that truth and that reality. And so we renew ourselves with that gospel truth again. Coming under the the water that he's pouring out on us. In this journey that we call faith. And so I I pray and I hope today that for those of you who understand and know that, your heart is yearning to be renewed in that sort of way. And maybe some of you don't know that. Think about why. Maybe that's the case. You may have some intellectual reasons, perhaps. I, I, I don't know. 
But there may be something resonating in you saying, this, this has the ring of truth to it, because you are longing for something, something fixed and firm and majestic, well beyond the scope of what this world can provide. Christ is the solution to that. He's the answer. He's the hope. He is the one who has shown his glory. When we beheld his faith, and he was, his face it was full of glory. He comes with that kind of grace and truth. Father, I 